0: Committed. we'll hear argument next in number 93986, Joseph McIntyre versus the Ohio Elections Commission we
1: had a
2: Mr. Goldberger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The issue in this case is whether the First Amendment permits the state of Ohio to criminalize petitioners' anonymous leafleting in public places because her unsigned leaflets urge members of her community to vote against a tax increase in a local referendum. Well, you're not saying
0: that that's why... uh, the leaflets were made punishable because they urged somebody to, to, to vote a particular way.
2: It seems to me, Your Honor, that it's the contention of the state of Ohio that anonymous political leaflets are unprotected when the leaflets address voters. So, indeed, it was the, the combination of the anonymity and the fact that the leaflet, leaflets were addressed to voters in a coming election. Because you say that's the only place where the Ohio statute applies is when the leaflets are addressed to voters? Uh, according to the uh, — it's when they, it, they address voters on a referendum issue or on, a, on an election, if, if, uh, if that's the thrust of the, of the Court's question. It's, these are not — it's not an anonymous uh, — a, a flat prohibition on all anonymous leafleting. It's a flat prohibition on all anonymous election-related leafleting, and in, in specific — The holding of the court below addressed the portion of the statute which prohibited anonymous leafleting with respect to referenda. The events leading to this case began on April 27th and 28th of 1988. An open forum was held at the Westerville uh, Middle Schools on both of those nights to discuss the merits of a tax levy, which was on the May 3rd ballot. The petitioner, Margaret McIntyre, distributed her leaflets to persons attending the meeting. The leaflets, the classic leaflets in the tradition of America's street corner leafletters, were produced on her home computer and duplicated at a local copy store. They were critical, sharply critical of school officials and urged readers to vote against the tax levy. A school official, J. Michael Hayfield, saw them, approached her, said that they were unlawful because they did not contain her name, and she said she was allowed by law, she thought, to distribute the leaflets. The tax levy was defeated a week later, it was put on the ballot a few months later and defeated again, and a few months after that it went on the ballot and finally passed. Well, what sort of a town is Westerville? What size? Is it by itself, or is it a suburb? Westerville is a, is a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. It's, uh, I don't know the precise population, Your Honor, but I'd, I'd assume it's 40 or 50,000 individuals. It is not a, a tiny uh, little uh, borough in, uh, in, in the uh, rural areas of Ohio.
3: Mr. Goldberger had uh, the flyer, of um, Ms McIntyre related to a congressional election, and if it cost more than two hundred and fifty dollars to produce, there would have been certain federal requirements uh, would there not of disclosing the expenditure to the FEC and her identity in making an expenditure and so forth?
2: Your Honor, under 44, 441D uh, of the Federal Election Campaign Act, mm-hmm. uh, there mm-hmm. is a disclosure requirement uh, with respect to expenditures mm-hmm. to uh, uh, pr- produce leaflets. It does extend. Uh,
3: now, do you, do you uh, take the position that that uh, kind of a requirement uh, is valid, there's no First Amendment violation? No, I believe,
2: Your Honor, that a disclosure requirement on any leaflet, uh, when the leaflet is co- uh, constitutes core political speech or is, is pure speech, uh, would violate the First Amendment.
3: Well, that wasn't my question. I don't think the Federal statute requires the disclosure on the leaflet. I believe it. I think it. it requires furnishing information to the FEC that I have spent X amount of dollars in connection with a political campaign, and that identity is then a matter of record. I suppose the public can learn who has made expenditures. Uh, Your Honor. It doesn't have to appear on the leaflet. Now, do you take the position that that violates the first amendment? No, no,
2: we do not, Your Honor. But with all due respect, I do believe 441D includes a requirement that the name appear on the face of the leaflet. We do not believe that the expenditure disclosure requirements are by any means, when appropriately framed, unlawful or unconstitutional. But What, we, what
3: about a requirement on a television ad that uh, the identity of the people running the ad be uh, shown?
2: I believe that's a different kind of a case, Your Honor, because... Uh, television is a conduit for a a, a great variety of communication, and there's a potential for confusion when a a viewer is watching television as to who's saying what and under what circumstances. In addition, uh, television as a form of broadcasting is governed by the Federal Communications Act and I believe is subject to a separate and distinct set of rules. So that we do
4: have an interest in knowing uh, who is the speaker?
2: You do have an interest in knowing... Uh, a situation in which there may be confusion because uh, the, the speaker appears to be someone other than whom the speaker actually is. But well, that... suppose
4: Mrs. McIntyre had hired other people to put out the leaflets, might there not have been confusion
2: there? Well, uh, I, I don't believe so, Your Honor, because the leaflets, are, they speak for themselves. When you watch television, uh, you are hearing communications from a whole uh, a, a large number of people as you're viewing the television screen, and in, in lots of situations, Um, If you watch Saturday Night Live, for example, uh, there's a lot of confusion as to whether you're watching an advertisement or whether you're watching a comedy skit. But your
0: typical TV ad isn't that way. I mean, there's no doubt that for that 30 seconds,
2: you're watching a commercial ad for Joe Doe. Well, it seems to me, Your Honor, under those circumstances, if there's clarity uh, as to who the vehicle is, um, I believe that uh, that there there shouldn't be an absolute necessity to place it on the screen, but I I would respectfully differ with the court. I do believe there's likely to be some confusion under those circumstances. Moreover, you're dealing with advertisements uh, or political advertisements which substantially exceed the cost of the campaign uh, expenditure disclosure minimums. What if
0: you just said on the television screen, uh, vote no on the referendum for
2: the Westerville Middle School? Uh, it seems to me that uh, to the extent there's an, an interest in an anonymity, and there is no um, confusion as to who is uh, speaking in light of the fact that you have the television serving as a conduit that is arguably constitutionally protected well, if do. the state
4: showed that there were confusion as to who were handing out leaflets, would there then be a requirement of anonymity of of, 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 of named Named persons?
2: It seems to me if you had a statute, well, you have statutes which deal with election fraud and misrepresentation. We're not really challenging those statutes here. I'm
4: positing an assumption where there are a lot of leaflets going around and somebody's confused about who's
2: writing the leaflets. I don't believe that's the business of the state, Your Honor. Well, then
4: that's not the answer to the question between asking you to distinguish between television and pamphlets.
2: Well, that assumes that uh, television uh, is governed by the same set of ground rules that are applicable to pamphlets. Uh, t- I believe because of the Federal Communications Act and the Red Lion decision, this Court has decided that there are separate sets of ground but rules that are applicable. What
5: spectrum scarcity got to do with this issue? I mean, that's the basic well, um, rationale well, for well, it, I
2: think she... Red Lion is not only a, a spectrum scarcity case, Your Honor. It's also a case uh, which deals with the problem of having a conduit of communication going into the home uh, in which there is, is an immediate impact in which there is a potential for confusion.
5: Well, isn't there an equal potential for confusion when I walk up to the polling place and I'm handed uh, six or eight or ten or twelve leaflets saying vote for this, that, or the other uh, person or issue on, on, the, on the way up to vote?
2: Your Honor, I believe that the uh, uh, voters are capable of deciding for themselves. They operate in, in, in a political climate. You, you just
5: did not see my puzzlement last September when I was on my way into the project. <laughs> <laughs> <Read, read that. laughs>
1: But let's be concrete about the Ohio statute. It it does say that any radio or television ad designed to influence the voters in an election must identify either the speaker or the financial sponsor. Is that constitutional? Sometimes, always, never?
2: Um, in, in my view, Your Honor. It is constitutional in the context of broadcasting, because I believe broadcasting poses a separate question.
1: That's all and it applies se- to, is radio or television uh, advertising.
2: Th- that's correct.
1: So you can, in any and all radio or television ads, the state legitimately can require identification of the speaker.
2: I, I believe that... Um, I believe that's true, but I think it's important to keep in mind that these are not political ads. The difference between um, a commercial advertisement or a political advertisement on a television is that it is paid for. It is paid for in sums that exceed the expenditure disclosure minimums, and there is a very different kind of a state interest involved when um, large sums of money are involved in the uh, election process. I mean,
1: if, if Ohio had a ceiling on the amount of money that said— Ms. McIntyre can do her flyer as long as she's not spending over $500 on it. That would be okay?
2: Um, for in, in a broadcast, or just on no, the flyer?
1: No, I mean, no, I don't. You said the thing was that the spending of money, substantial amounts of money. Suppose it's very same statute, but it has... Uh, a dollar limit under which you don't have to disclose your name
2: that that would track 441 d your honor as we read 4041 d i believe that the appropriate disclosure is not on the face of the leaflet but it is to the uh, election the appropriate election commission Um, however because this court has taken the position that expenditure disclosure requirements are appropriate under some circumstances um, I think it's a, a judgment call for the court as to whether or not it would also require a disclosure on the face of the leaflet. Well, Mr. I believe Goldberger, that could be
3: the, the statute, 441-D, does say that uh, whenever a person makes an expenditure for the purpose of financing communications for an election, such communication shall clearly state the name of the person making it. Now, if, that's, if it means what it says, and... If we have upheld that statute, generally, in Buckley, uh, where does that leave you?
2: Your Honor, 441-D addresses the question of expenditures. This is a question of pure speech. This is not a disclosure requirement which addresses the question of expenditures. Ohio's laws say all persons Shall put their names on their leaflets. It does not frame it in terms of people who will make expenditures.
4: And but this is less restrictive than an expenditure statute. The statute of Justice O'Connor is telling you about has two restrictions A, limitation on expenses, and B, a disclosure. I, are, are you saying that the state can do the greater and not the lesser?
2: No, I, I'm not sure I understand the court's question.
4: Well, you're, 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 you're saying that the that you would assume, I, I, no. I interpreted this from your answer, that if there were an, ex- an expenditure uh, limitation, that a disclosure requirement might be valid.
2: Well, a disclosure requirement, to I believe a disclosure requirement to the Election Commission would be appropriate. I don't believe such a disclosure requirement ought to be required on the face of the leaflet when the leaflet is Pure speech and is completely protected.
4: Do you think it's constitutional to require that any time anybody prints a leaflet, they disclose that to, a, to an elections commission?
2: No, I believe that's not so. Um, I believe that it is appropriate or consistent with this court's decision in Buckley, however, that when someone expends a certain amount of money in excess of a threshold minimum, that they can be compelled to disclose the expenditure. To the Election Commission.
0: So the constitutionality of such a prohibition would depend on uh, some minimum
2: to be selected by the legislature? I mean, no, could uh, the legislature suggest 25, so choose $25? I believe, Your Honor, that the minimum uh, has, constitutional, has a constitutional element to the extent that it is a, uh, a minimum which interferes with the ability of street corner leafleters to disseminate their views and to articulate their views. Um, and for others that have a legitimate basis for remaining anonymous because of their fear of retaliation, the kind of retaliation uh, which uh, the justice below suggested might have existed in this case, that there is anonymity, and, and that ha- uh, any threshold requirement has to leave room for that anonymity. The state's um, central arguments, uh, the, the Ohio, Sup- beg your pardon, the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, rested its decision on the fact that this case and the statute should re- re- be reviewed by a relaxed level of scrutiny. It took the position that because 3599.09 is um, is an election regulation, it is not, it not need be viewed by the usual high level of scrutiny that this Court applies to First Amendment and uh, communications um, and those communications that ordinarily occur in the election context. It rejected Tally, in short, on grounds that petitioners' leaflets addressed voters on discrimination while Tally addressed passers by. Excuse me. It, it rejected petitioners' leaflets because it addressed voters in a referendum while, it, while Tally addressed passers by on the issue of race discrimination. The Ohio Supreme Court was wrong. 3599.09 is invalid because it is not a regulation of the mechanics of the election process. It is a regulation of pure speech. It interferes with the flow of speech to inform voters. It deters criticisms of public, offici- deters criticisms of public officials by those individuals who would prefer to remain anonymous because of a fear of potential retaliation. It-
1: it's bank- Boston, the Bellotti case, where the court said that that law was unconstitutional, but a disclosure requirement would be okay. Are you drawing a line between individuals like McIntyre and corporations? Or?
2: I believe that the court should draw a line between individuals like McIntyre and and corporations. What about
1: rich individuals versus poor corporations?
2: It seems to me. You're- <laughs> it- it seems to me, Your Honor, that those matters can be handled through expenditure disclosure requirements. This Court sustained them in Buckley, and to the extent that the Court treats them as valid requirements uh, under the First Amendment, um, the rich speaker can be reached under the um, under the First Amendment. And I might add, the State of Arizona has used precisely this approach. It has repealed a statute much like 3599.09 and replaced it with an expenditure disclosure requirement um, and a disclosure requirement on, on the face of leaflets, which is uh, limited to political committees and requires only the disclosure of the names of major donors to those political committees where the donor has contributed a very substantial sum of money as a consequence, and that this, the sections uh, the relevant sections uh, are cited in footnote two of the state 's brief you have to
0: under the Arizona statute, do you have to disclose the names of major donors on the leaflet
2: as I, As I read the, the, the new statute, Your Honor, you disclose the name of one, uh, one donor, the major donor, one or two donors uh, who have contributed a, a substantial sum of money on the leaflet. I'm not arguing that that's a valid requirement. What I am suggesting is that the state of Arizona has taken a step back from the, the uh, flat ban of statutes like 3599.09. But you suggest it may not have been a useful step if you... Well, it seems to me... ...institutional. I don't have any difficulty in compelling the name of the political committee to be placed on the leaflet. And I I also don't have any difficulty with... um, substantial contributors being uh, compelled to disclose their uh, expenditures and contributions to the Election Campaign Commission.
0: Well, certainly some of our cases have said that organizations couldn't be required to disclose the names of their members, the the
2: NAACP, for example. That's correct, Your Honor, and we rely on those cases. But I believe that uh, the state statute in Ohio contains no exception whatsoever. And the difficulty with this statute is that it's a flat ban on an anonymous. Well, why can't it be justified
0: on, on the possibility of, of fraud, libel, slander uh, that it obtains in that sort of thing, and the the, the identification permits uh, uh, that sort of action where it's warranted?
2: Well, it seems to me, Your Honor, that the State has valid uh, libel and fraud laws, and uh, it can use those laws. The well, but how can it use them if it doesn't know who published the statement? Well, first of all, Your Honor, uh, to, you know, to quote the, uh, the, uh, the, well, first of all, the, to quote the, the State's brief, prevaricators cannot be expected to point a beacon at their own lives. Those who are engaged, and that's uh, at page 18, and those who, are in, who intend uh, to defraud or lie in one way or another are hardly likely to, uh, deal with, uh, putting their, are hardly likely to put their names on the, um, on well, the but, pamphlet. But I'm, to
0: to prevaricate isn't the only thing. How, how about someone who, who libels?
2: Well, Your Honor, a libel is, uh, unlikely in a referendum election or at least the kind of libel that this court should be, uh, uh, how do you defraud? It is, I believe it's impossible to libel a referendum to the ex-
0: well, what, what what if you said the school superintendent has deliberately misrepresented the need for this uh, budget bill
2: well i will say that i believe that sounds a great deal like political political advocacy to me to the extent that libel is uh, uh, he has a libel action he can file his libel action these are matters that ought to be corrected he in the— can't, he can't file it against an anonymous leaflet,
0: or if he doesn't know who wrote the leaflet.
2: Yeah, but he will find out, if necessary, by going to the—if the, uh, the disclosure requirement is imposed, by going to uh, the but election the, but campaign. the state of Ohio hasn't chosen a disclosure requirement. Yeah, no, on the contrary, they've chosen a flat ban on all anonymous— Well, places. and I'm saying, what's wrong
0: with it? Because uh, if, if the thing is libelous— the, per- the person who's libel ought to know who it was so that he can have some recourse.
2: Your Honor, I will agree that there is a state interest in ferring, ferreting out individuals who have engaged in libel, um, which affect the election process. But I don't believe that the Court can do it at the expense of individuals who, who are engaged in pure speech, who wish to remain anonymous, and who... Um, will otherwise not distribute their leaflets or make their political statements in, in political literature. In this case, literature. she
1: didn't wish to remain anonymous. It wasn't the testimony that, that she, uh, she meant to put her name on the leaflet.
2: That's true. She, was, uh, she st- stated that when she appeared pro se before the uh, Election Commission. However— You never made a claim,
5: I take it, that there was, that there was any such interest as was recognized in NAACP in Alabama.
2: Um.
1: Well, Brown is the social workers, that the, the very identity of the person uh, would, would leave that person exposed to danger. Well, uh,
2: going into this thing, it didn't appear that that was the case, and her position was before the Commission— that she had attempted to comply with the statute, and it was basically a trap for the unwary. But as uh, events unfolded, the complaint against her wasn't filed until a year after the leafleting actually occurred and three election referenda later, when it finally passed. At that point, the school officials, who she had criticized, initiated and pressed the proceedings against her. She had, as a consequence, she has a fine, or had a fine, uh, that that still is a valid fine. Moreover, she and every other uh, resident of the village of Wester City of Westerville are now on notice that when they take on school officials in these tax levy uh, referenda, they do so uh, knowing that the school officials are going to fight back and but very hard. She
1: have been in exactly the same position if she didn't have to put her name on a leaflet, but she did have to register with the election commission so that um, mean school official that. Uh, could have found out her name that way?
2: Your Honor, there are going to be, uh, in my view, that individuals who do not (laughs) expend sufficient funds to make them uh, legitimate targets of campaign expenditure laws should be left alone, and she would not have making, making a, a leaflet on a home computer, duplicating it at the lo- local copy store, would not have placed her within the reach of so, an so appropriately drafted statute. So you'd have
4: no difficulty with a, uh, a procedure where, if there were a libelous pamphlet, uh, the attorney for the plaintiff could take the deposition of everybody who had made a disclosure to the f- uh, financing authorities and ask them, did you print this leaflet? Well, it what leaflets se- have
2: you printed? Well, it seems to me, Your Honor, when you have, if you have... Now, we're talking New York Times versus Sullivan libel, I assume. But to the extent that you have some kind of a criminal libel, you have um, law enforcement tools which are readily available with or without these kinds of statutes. And anyone can be asked by an appropriate law enforcement official. I'm
4: not familiar with proceedings in which policemen help plaintiffs... Lawyers enforce civil libel. Oh,
2: I see. Uh, I, I misunderstood the question. And, and, and
4: it seems to me that, that that's an even worse specter.
2: Well, it, it's, your Honor, I don't believe it's the function of the state election laws to help civil libel litigants. The, the function of the state election I, I law. Thought
4: you, I thought you were justifying uh, the answers to some of your questions and to some of these problems we confront by saying that there's a public disclosure requirement for many, many pamphlets.
2: But the purpose of any public disclosure requirement, Your Honor, is to assist the State in making sure that there is not an election fraud which will affect the outcome of an election. The purpose of those statutes is not to provide a civil action or facilitate a civil action by someone who has a complaint about the contents of an election leaflet. I would like to reserve the rest of Uh, my time. Can I ask a question? Uh, The... the, uh,
6: Think of the ordinary case where I think you'd say, yes, the state can, in fact, tell people uh, that they can pay, spend, contribute no more than X amount. Right. We agree that they can do that in certain circumstances. Now, suppose the state has an enforcement mechanism, and I think this is a question that's been asked before, but I've, when I, the enforcement mechanism says, you have to sign a paper, send it to the commission and say you've spent no more than $10,000. You agree they could do that. And moreover, we want a list of everything you've spent the $10,000 on. I take it you say they could do that.
2: I would prefer and, they couldn't, but I think the court has right. said that.
6: Yes, fine. And moreover, just to be sure, I don't want you just to have the list mentioning it by general title. I want you to attach as Appendix 1 the actual leaflets that you've sent. I take it you think you can, they could do that. Um, and in my question, obviously, is they can do all that, what's the difference? I mean, I feel there is some difference, perhaps. Well, but I don't believe they can. I don't pamphlet.
2: think they can do yeah. that under circumstances in which the individual can legitimately claim a need for anonymity. Oh, so and in other words, it, they
6: can They could say, "We want a list of all the ten thousand dollars worth of stuff you spent it on," but they can't say and attach the pamphlets.
2: I believe uh, at that point we would be dealing with this court's holding in Brown versus. Course, but what's
6: the, what is the practical? that is the functional, what's the reasoning by which it would make sense to say, uh, you can, in fact, list all these things by name. You have to list, I spent the 10000 on A, on B, on C, but the commission can't say and attaches Appendix 1,
2: the actual pamphlet, so we know that you really did it. I believe, Your Honor, that that is the problem that this Court faced in the disclosure requirements with respect to the unpopular political parties. At a certain point, the State cannot constitutionally require it. Because? Because of the interest in anonymity, and and to the extent that there is an interest, she must be left alone. The difficulty in— But you have not made
5: an anonymity claim. I mean, you, 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 you told us that your client did not make any, I said NAACP, any brown kind of claim. Yeah, but we're now, t- the questions that have
2: been put to me, Your Honor, have No, but been your a-
5: answer is, I understood your answer to that question is that the point of limit comes when the individual can assert that kind of an, a brown anonymity claim, and you don't assert it in this case. Be,
2: your Honor, because the statute is a flat ban, the statute falls of its own weight, we are, I'm being put, questions are being put to me on a hypothetical statute, which would be formed in, uh, framed and formed in the form of a disclosure, expenditure disclosure requirement. And that is a separate question.
5: So you're saying that in, in this case, uh, let's take this case, that if there were a, uh, a, an identification requirement, but the, but the law provided in any case in which an individual can make a specialized showing uh, of of danger from disclosure uh, some state official can can excuse the individual from compliance that that would be a constitutional statute
2: Your Honor, uh, to the extent that Buckley versus Valio allows uh, expenditure disclosures it would seem to me that um, to the extent that the state is trying to learn about uh, expenditure disclosure and uh, expenditures in election and not trying to regulate the content of protected leaflets yes it would be a valid requirement to well, do. Well, would that be
5: the proper inference from the, uh, from, the, from the statute that I just described to you, that the state's motives were benign, not malign?
2: Well, it, if, it's, if it's not benign, I don't understand why they're asking for the information, why they need the information. No, but in, in, the, in the case of my hypothetical, in which the statute uh,
5: contains the circuit breaker, would you infer, by virtue of the circuit breaker's uh, existence, Uh, that the state's uh, interest was a constitutionally
2: uh, uh, cognizable one. I believe so. In candidate elections, I have my doubts, sir, in referendum elections because of the fact that you cannot libel a referendum. Thank you, Mr. Goldberger. Uh, Mr. Sutter, we'll hear from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court... I think the Court's dialogue with Mr. Goldberger demonstrates just how much this case is controlled by Bilotti and Buckley. Um, in Bilotti, we have footnote 32, which specifically states, in the a, in a heart of a case in which campaign contributions or a limitation on campaign contributions was struck down, that the effective vehicle in these instances is a disclosure statute, one where the advertiser or the person circulating the the, the handbill or making a television advertisement, discloses his or her identity. There is no distinction between those circumstances and these. In fact,
1: Baladi was... Between these spenders and little spenders, if you take the Campaign Act as a model, even if the limits are pretty low, there are limits. But if you go below those limits, you don't have to disclose. Justice Ginsburg,
7: in Buckley the court recognized how low the thresholds really were before someone had to report. But the court said in that case
1: that that was a legislative call. In Baladi, the whole— Where where to draw the line. Where to draw the line. Did the court say there didn't have to be any line so that people who don't spend any money still have to report? Well, Your Honor, in in Baladi, the court
7: decided that there was no distinction, especially in the context of ballot measure elections between corporations and individuals, that their First Amendment rights were coextensive. So I don't understand how there could be a principled basis upon which one could require
1: a corporation to disclose just because they were better healed and might be able to communicate My distinction wasn't in terms of the character of the entity, but of does it need to be some point below which, if you're not, if the concern is big spending, mustn't you have some limit to leave out the little people like MS. McEntire.
7: No, Your Honor, because the, the only concern before the Court in Buckley was not just campaign contributions and expenditures, uh, some sort of threshold to distinguish big money from small money. The Court specifically recognized as a distinct and independent compelling interest the disclosure of information that was important to the electorate to help them evaluate candidates. In this case, and, and in that instance, it was the associates of the candidate. In the case at Barr, this state statute does the same thing in the context of a referendum. It identifies the person who's circulating literature opposing or promoting a ballot issue, and it provides the name of that person as information to the electorate. And I contend there's no distinction between that interest in a ballot measure election and the interest of disclosing the associations of a candidate in a candidate election.
3: What interests do you want to rely on here to support the state's ban?
7: Your Honor, there are two. One is the deterrence of fraud, and the other is—
3: Are there other statutes in Ohio that deal with uh, fraud and that could be used to prosecute someone who put out a fraudulent campaign lately?
7: Yes, there are, Your Honor, but— These circumstances are very similar to Buckley, for example, where the Court recognized the existence of bribery statutes. Mm -hmm. Certainly, bribery statutes would have been enough to defeat or or was a, a minimum restriction on speech that could have been utilized to deter campaign and candidate corruption, but nevertheless, the Court still upheld disclosure. In Burson, the Court recognized in Tennessee that there were voter intimidation laws on the books that could have been utilized to deter the same sort of evil conduct the Court was trying to deter in person, but nevertheless upheld the campaign-free zone.
3: I mean, I guess you'd say that Ohio could require, had we been back uh, in those days, the disclosure of the writers of all of the Federalist Papers. No,
7: Your Honor. We we think this is a much more limited statute that addresses only campaign literature or broadcast media.
3: Well, if they were circulated in support of a referendum on whether the Constitution should be adopted or ratified, you would say it would have been perfectly okay to require disclosure.
7: Your Honor, the circumstances then were somewhat different. We think that the protections of the First Amendment make a difference, but if today the Federalist Papers were being circulated, we would argue that the State had a compelling interest in requiring the Speakers — to place their name on the literature. There would be no difference. And that's, that's our point here. There is no principled way to distinguish different types of campaign literature, distinguishing the well-heeled or those who are capable of communicating more effectively with those who do so on a smaller level. Um, th- this Court has recognized that there's really, there is no justification for treating or restricting the rights of groups, for example, um, at the uh, to the advantage of individuals in Berkeley, in Bellotti, um the court recognized that there are First Amendment rights associated with groups being able to go over and s- go out and speak together, and that there was no distinction made there. There wasn't um, a tier of protected rights established so that groups or effective speakers would be able to that the state could place more restrictions on their speech. Than on individuals.
4: Your interests are the deterrence of fraud and informing the electorate? Those are your two interests?
7: Yes, Your Honor. We think that this statute serves a parallel interest as the statute in Buckley, where the court said that the that information important to the voter, information that enables the voter to place a candidate in the political spectrum.
4: How about Mrs. McIntyre's address? Should that have been on? Wouldn't that have helped inform the electorate?
7: Yes, Your Honor, and that's required by the law.
4: All right. And uh, how about her partisan affiliation?
7: Your Honor, we think there is a point at which too much information would cross the line.
4: The public gets confused by too much information.
7: No, Your Honor, but we we are not ignoring or or, um, denying that there is an interest in political speech here. Certainly the State couldn't require Margaret McIntyre to fill up the literature to the point that it, it eliminated room for her message. What we're saying here is that all this statute does is it makes a minimum amount, it requires a minimum amount of disclosure, enough to identify the speaker. One of the points that came up during the course of Mr. Goldberger's argument is that this type of law is actually less intrusive of First Amendment rights than campaign finance laws are, and we would submit especially for someone like Margaret McIntyre. In our instance, the person puts their name and address on the page of their advertisement, They mass-produce it. They distribute it. They never come in contact with the government. There are no uh, burdensome filing requirements. In the Buckley case... Well, Mr. Souter, I would
3: have thought that if the First Amendment stood for anything at all, it stood for my right to put out a flyer at a local school board election on an issue that I cared about without identifying myself. I mean, it just, um, I think it's quite remarkable to say that Ohio can just totally ban this. I mean, what does the First Amendment protect if
7: not that kind of core political speech? Your Honor, the State would acknowledge that there's core political speech involved here, but there's a difference, we think, between the, the ability to what deliver the What kind message. of
3: test do we employ? Is it strict
7: scrutiny? Your Honor, the, the court below... And do you
3: think the court below applied strict scrutiny?
7: No, Your Honor, the court below did not apply strict scrutiny. But under the circumstances, we believe regardless of what test the court applies, whether it be the, stand, the flexible standard under Anderson versus Celebreze or strict scrutiny, this statute passes constitutional muster because it serves compelling interests.
4: Do you think it's appropriate to apply a flexible standard to court political speech?
7: Your Honor, I think when there is a competing interest of equal importance, as there is in this case, protecting the right to vote, that a flexible approach has appeal, in that it permits the Court to measure the, the amount of intrusion against um, the interests of the State. But under the circumstances, the Court never has to reach that question, because we believe that the statute involved serves compelling State interests. And you you uh, yes, sure.
1: recognise that to be compatible with the First Amendment, there would at least have to be an exception for the Socialist Worker Party kind of case, where the person says, "If I put my name, if I put my name on this piece of literature, I may be subject to a, an assault or some danger." Your Honour, that really goes to an overbreadth question, and well, we do believe. Neither- Suppose Ms. McIntyre, instead of saying, here I am, I want my neighbors to know what I think, has said, I want to get across this message, but I'm going to be in grave danger if I am so bold as to oppose this powerful principal or superintendent of the school district. Suppose that were her position.
7: Your Honor, we think that the Ohio courts would construe the statute in constitutional fashion just as this Court did in the Buckley case. Does there
1: have to be an exception of that type? We think
7: that that would be appropriate. We don't think it's fatal. Necessary and appropriate is is not what we decide. We would would concede even necessary, but we don't think it's fatal to the constitutionality of the statute that it's silent on the subject any more than it was fatal to the statute in Buckley. We think that that's a question when the facts present themselves that the Ohio courts will deal with appropriately, that they will give it the appropriate constitutional construction, but here there is no evidence of retaliation. There's no evidence of fear. Mrs. McIntyre testified at the Ohio Elections Commission hearing that some of the, the leaflets that she circulated indeed contained her name and address, that she had intended to include them on all of her brochures, on all her leaflets. So this does not raise the specter of legitimate fear of retaliation. Uh, the, the, the similarities between.
4: So, so if someone feared retaliation, uh and wanted to keep anonymity, they'd go to a, a court and file a lawsuit? I assumed, I assumed the official on the other side should have some opportunity to be heard?
7: Your Honor, I think there would be an opportunity for something like a Jane Doe lawsuit. But I don't think this is so different. It sounds the end- me
4: like that would deter at least the rather shy person.
7: Your Honor, I think the court, I can't stand here and, and argue to the court that there aren't prospects or possibilities for deterrence of speech, for chilling of speech. But that was exactly the circumstances in Buckley. The Court recognized that the campaign finance disclosure requirements could chill speech, but the Court hesitated in striking down the statute on the prospect, the speculation of potential harm, and instead decided that on a case-by-case basis, where there would be an opportunity to demonstrate harm, that that would render the statute not applicable to those particular circumstances. And all we're asking is for the same sort of discretion to be extended to the state courts. We think there's very little difference between the Buckley circumstances. The parallels are remarkable. And I think that the Court has identified, through the course of this argument, some of the dangers to existing statutory law if the petitioner's
1: side prevails. Mr. Sutter, Justice O'Connor brought up the tradition of pamphleteering going back to the Federalist Papers, and I was thinking of a case that we had last term. It was the City of Ladue case. Yes, Your Honor. It was traditional, accepted that you could have unobtrusive signs on your own property. Well, isn't there the same kind of venerable tradition attached to the lone leaf litter in this country?
7: I think there is a tradition. I think that the aspect of anonymity changes the perspective of the case. We're not saying and didn't say to Margaret McIntyre that she couldn't speak, that she couldn't hand out literature, that she couldn't say whatever she wanted in that literature. All we're saying is that because of the countervailing state interest in protecting the electoral process, that, we may pro- that the state may require her to provide the public with access to a limited amount of pertinent information to help them make better educated electoral choices. And I think that under the circumstances where you have these competing interests, that the Court has recognized in the past that occasionally First Amendment core speech has to yield to this greater interest, especially whereas here it is a minimal intrusion.
5: Well, your it- argument, basically, I guess you make two arguments. One is that you will d- either deter fraud or you'll make it easier to detect and prosecute fraud, and, and, and you, will, uh, you will allow voters to evaluate what is said on the kind of the theory of from whence it comes. What do, you, what do you say about the argument that somebody who really wants to thwart those interests is simply um, uh, n- not only going to lie once, but lie twice and put down the wrong name and address? Well,
7: Your Honor, we can't completely control the conduct of anyone under these circumstances. No, but is there reason
5: to believe that this is going to be effective in the cases that you, that you posit?
7: Yeah, yes, we do. And uh, it's been followed on a regular basis. I mean, there's very robust political activity in Ohio. And this disclaimer has this attribution requirement has been placed on literature. I don't think the state can can determine what it's going to try to deter or how it's going to regulate based on those who would try to evade the law. Otherwise, that would be true of almost any criminal or civil enforcement statute.
5: You know, the state's interest has to be evaluated in a realistic fashion, and I guess you're telling me you have found no instances, there are no instances mm-hmm. on, the, on the record or disclosed in, in any of the amicus briefs here in which that kind of... Uh, a, a double fraud has been has been perpetrated and therefore has rendered the, the state's interest uh, uh, one of hope rather than of, of realistic expectation
7: There's nothing in this record to demonstrate that I, I suppose it could happen but I don't think that would be sufficient to invalidate the scope of the law um, that the state can't regulate under those circumstances if they're going to be concerned about who will try to evade it and, and this statute here um, I, I, another similarity that I'd like to point out with the Buckley case is that in Buckley the court struck down limitations on expenditures identifying that as intruding on core political speech but it retained it validated the disclosure requirement and that's the same sort of statute that we have here if one looks at Buckley and Bellotti especially at the Bellotti footnote that authorizes this kind of attribution it links Buckley and Bellotti it cites Buckley for the same proposition that the state is citing it for today. And that has two important characteristics. One is that Buckley addressed not just groups, but individuals. And it links them in the way that they are both disclosure statutes, that they are both constitutional. I think the Court asked before whether we could require Mrs. McIntyre and others to file with with the Ohio Elections Commission. Well, we think we could, but we have chosen a different vehicle that we think is less intrusive
6: is this, um, do you want to say anything more about the strength of the state's interest in requiring this and in my mind at the moment you're saying well there are really three basically one is the uh, we don't want them to lie and we want to know who's lying so that assumes that the person who sends out a pamphlet lying is going to tell the truth about who's doing it it strikes me as a little weak the the uh the the second is that, well, it will help us enforce the disclosure laws. But you can get quite far enforcing those disclosure laws, I take it, by simply requiring people to stick within a list and listing their expenditures in some way or other. If so, does that leave you with the thing, well, a group of people, namely the voters of the state of Ohio, say, we want to know who's putting out this leaflet. And the person who's putting it out says, well, I don't want to tell you. And if that's the conflict, doesn't the First Amendment require us to come down in favor of the individual? I'm I'm, I'm putting that purposely because I want to get your responses to to what I've done to try to minimize the strength, and you'll try to maximize
7: it. All right, I'll do my best, Your Honor. (laughs) I'll start backwards, if I may. First, um, I think the Court has articulated the interest that was recognized in Buckley that there was an independent justification for upholding the disclosure uh, laws, and that was to provide information to the electorate, important information to help them evaluate the candidates. And I think it's striking in the context of Buckley that the court not only required disclosure of identity, but disclosure of associations, a much more severe restriction and disclosure requirement, than just placing your own name and address on your literature, so we think that that this regulation is even less demanding and less intrusive of First Amendment rights than the risk campaign finance requirements of Buckley. Mr. Senator,
8: what, what's the pedigree of, of provisions like this? Uh, uh, I gather they didn't have any in uh, in, uh, in 1787. Uh, when's the first one that you know about?
7: Your Honor, I believe that these laws started to appear in the early portion of the 20th century, around 1910, 1915, at the same time that other types of campaign reform was underway, as the Court noted in Burson with the Australian Ballot Procedure. And these, these uh, particular statutes have extended on through the years. That's where they began as part of a, uh, an effort to, at, campa- at election campaign reform.
8: And, and, and they go back that far, you?
7: Yes, Your Honor. Um, some statutes in 1912, the Um, There is a case discussing the Ohio statute, the predecessor to the Ohio statute, as early as 1922, but the statute was in existence for years before that. And that's, that's, I think, a good point, is that this is all part of the same reform movement. In electoral politics, the Court recognized in Buckley that the disclosure requirement was part of Congress's effort at total disclosure. Do
8: you think the disclosure requirement in Buckley was intended to help the voter evaluate the message that was being paid for by the a political organization?
7: Yes, Your Honor, that's explicit in Buckley. The Buckley, um, the, uh, Buckley Court identified three compelling interests, separ- each of which would justify the law. And one of them was to help evaluate the candidate's position by placing him in the political spectrum. And how did they do that? How, does, how do campaign finance laws do that? They do that by requiring the candidate to reveal not just his name and his address and the way he or she may have spent money, but in terms of parties, money, yeah. his associations.
1: That's but a didn't, far more... Didn't Buckley focus on candidate support of candidate as distinguished from issues? Indeed, didn't the Court say in Buckley that um, the, the, there would be concern, if the provision were interpreted, to reach groups, instead of candidate supporting groups, groups engaged purely in issue discussion?
7: Your Honor, the Court did say that, but... In the context of Buckley, the the first answer is that there are no referenda or initiatives, actual issues that go on the ballot in federal law. The other answer is, and the one that I think gets directly to your point, is that I think what the court was talking about there and why they narrowed the statute to express advocacy is something that this statute doesn't regulate, which is the general discussion of political events in society. This statute doesn't reach beyond campaign literature, and I think that's what the Court was concerned about in Buckley. They were concerned that, as I get attacked here, they were concerned by this whole notion of it spreading beyond campaign literature to just general discussion. That's why, in the normal course of events, the Federalist Papers, as they actually appeared, as they actually were utilized, wouldn't have been affected by this law because it was not in the context of a popular election.
8: No, but it surely was to support or defeat an issue of some importance.
7: Yes, Your Honor, but it was not designed... that's what the
8: statute pertains to.
7: Your Honor, what this statute pertains to is it's not attempting to control public discussion of public policy or foreign affairs.
8: Promote the adoption or defeat of any issue.
7: Yes, Your Honor, in Ohio an issue is what appears on the ballot. It is the the actual question that the electorate goes to the polls to address. It is in the context of a popular election. The whole statutory scheme is directed towards campaign activity. It is an election law. Now, it may regulate political speech, but it's still an election law. It only comes up in that context just as provisions against trying to bribe an electorate or an election official is a campaign election law. Now, we don't think there's there's been a principled, justification articulated either by Mr. Goldberg today or in petitioner's brief that would distinguish the Buckley situation and the Bilotti situation from the case at bar. Um, and if the Court has no further questions on The Bilotti
8: situation is just a footnote comment. It wasn't any part of the holding.
7: Your Honor, but it follows. In every single one of the Court's decisions limiting campaign contributions and expenditures to one extent or another, THE COURT MAKES A POINT. BELATI
8: IS NOT ONE OF THOSE CASES.
7: BUT THE COURT MAKES A POINT IN BUCKLEY, IN Bellotti, IN CITIZENS AGAINST RENT CONTROL, um, AGAINST BERKELEY, THE COURT MAKES A POINT OF INDICATING THAT DISCLOSURE REQUIREMENTS ARE THE LEAST INTRUSIVE METHOD FOR REGULATING ELECTIONS IN THIS WAY. THEY, they MENTION IT TIME, and THE COURT MENTIONS IT TIME AND TIME AGAIN, AS IF IT'S A RUNNING THEME. That disclosure, a message to the public, to the, the, as you might, the legislatures of of all the states, saying that disclosure is appropriate. And that's what Ohio was chosen to do here. We can't serve these compelling interests, I don't think, serve them both in the same statute, any more narrowly. All we're asking for here is is a minimal amount of additional information so that the electorate can evaluate the, the campaign message.
3: You know, in this context, though, it, it almost seems that on when the leaflet speaks to the merits of a particular issue, as this does, that uh, the electorate can take into consideration the fact that uh, there is no identification of the speaker attached to the message and can conclude if it wishes, that therefore it should be discounted. I'm not sure how strong the state's interest is in forcing the information on the electorate. I mean, as a voter, I can say, well, here's an anonymous flyer, and if they don't care enough to put their name on it, I'm going to toss it in the wastebasket. I don't see why the state's interest is so strong.
7: Your Honor, I think that is a difficult question. Um, and and one that uh, that the legislature wrestled with. And I think this court, in a way, uh, wrestled with it in Buckley. I mean, the circumstances were the same. If one eliminates from the Buckley scenario the limitations on campaign expenditures and – or the limitation on campaign contributions, um, that there still remains this independent, compelling state interest of disclosure of information.
8: So We're entitled to assume, aren't we, that the people of of, of Ohio like this law?
7: Can we assume, yes. yes, Your Honor, the general? I mean, their pamphlet, legislature
8: that adopted it. So.
7: Yes, and there hasn't in a normal been normal any...
8: course of events. I guess most people in Ohio like this.
7: Your Honor, there haven't been any uh, initiatives or referenda on the ballot to repeal it.
8: And presumably, uh, uh, would rather know uh, uh, who's putting out these pamphlets than not know.
1: I think that's correct, and that reflects that most people in Ohio don't know a thing about the existence of this law. <laughs> Your Honor. I wouldn't want to speculate
7: either way, but I would say that that the vast majority of legislatures and the Congress think that this is important legislation. They think that it outweighs any interest in anonymity because it doesn't affect the person's right to speak. And I think, Your Honor, Justice O'Connor, that here the state perhaps could have decided not to do this. But that doesn't minimize the interest. The state still had the interest in providing this sort of limited information to help voters evaluate ballot issues. There's really no difference. I mean, ballot issues affect the electorate's life as much as legislative decisions by, by the legislature.
8: Or
6: that's, that's Why? Why? If that was my question before, and I wrote down the answer. Buckley. Buckley. Yeah, I've got that answer. I want to know if there's anything more than that. That is to say, if you have the voters of the state of Ohio who say, we really would like to know who's putting this out, and you have a person who says, I really don't want to tell you. Now, why is it that the Constitution comes down on the side of the voters of Ohio, given the First Amendment?
7: Your Honor, the First Amendment protects speech, but it doesn't necessarily say that the, the state can never regulate anonymous speech.
6: So, so, in other words, if the person say, you could have a law which says, if, by the way, you put an argument in an election campaign, you must legally put the counter argument. That might be a very nice law, but I mean uh, is that the constitution says I don't want to tell you the arguments against my position.
7: Your Honor, I think that's the tornado to case. To it. I think that's the tornado case. But these statutes, that sort of scenario is is drastically different. We're not trying to control the content. We're not trying to make someone say, I have my position and now I'm going to articulate my opponents. All we are asking for is that you identify yourself and then say whatever you want. If Margaret McIntyre had observed the law here, she never would have found herself before the Ohio Elections Commission. It was not uh, it was not that she had disclosed her identity, it was her failure to disclose her. That's
4: true of most of the cases we get here. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Your Honor. But but it does it does go to this whole question of retaliation. And it goes to this whole question of what the real intrusion was as far as First Amendment speech is concerned.
0: Thank, Thank you, Mr. Goldberger. The case is submitted <laughs>
7: The Honorable Court is now adjourned
2: until Monday next at 10 o'clock.